Oh, the Friday theme twice this week? Yeah, I told you. It was going to be super weird during the end of the year here. Uh, last new podcast episode for the year. But in case you missed any, I am going to just keep an eye on your notifications. Just keep an eye and keep coming back. Re-listen to some old ones that you really enjoyed. If one of the past podcasts that you really enjoyed was uh, with Dr. Kang from uh, Brightview, uh, Substance Abuse Services and Beyond. If you enjoyed Dr. Kang's visits here, um, obviously his focus is on substance abuse, but I'm always willing, and he's always willing to answer my questions when I a- ask him, you know, general mental health stuff. And I do have several for him today from several people who I have tried to be of some help of recently. And I've kind of run into some some brick walls, but he was able to help me so I can help you if it comes to that. Dr. Kang will be on in just a second, along with uh, my friend, Gene Dries, who's the outreach manager for Brightview. And if you know of anybody struggling with substance abuse, um, if you feel a bit put off and think, yeah, they can't help, I've tried them, just give this podcast a listen. Give some of the pieces of audio to that person who might say, I've tried work. I'm just resigned to this. Um, spend the hour with us here momentarily. First, I'll tell you, um, my morning was a little weird. Um, all of our routines are off. I had all the intentions to go to the gym, but vacation starts uh, as soon as I sign off on the radio show tonight. So I went home and pulled out a recipe I'd been sitting on. Do you remember when Mary Bill, you uh, food maven Mary, Mary from uh, The Blade, their food editor, was on a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about a uh, Latkes, and she pointed out to me Marshall Goldstein's latkes recipe. I put it aside a couple weeks ago. I bought the ingredients and barely some matzo meal, uh, matzo meal shredded. You could shred your own potatoes. I bought the frozen shredded kind. Uh, I got some eggs, which I'm not from my stomach. If you can hear it, I'm not lactose intolerant. It's just like all kinds of dairy intolerant. I didn't. Uh, didn't I didn't take my thing in time, and my stomach has been grumbling ever since I ate that first one. Which, after I did, um, after I put all this together, put it in the blender, a little pepper, very easy recipe. The pictures are on social. They don't look great. And the plastic plate doesn't, or the paper plate doesn't help either. But I got to tell you, it gave me flavor memories of the latkes that my grandpa used to make when I was a kid. Uh, even the texture of it. So they didn't look as I was hoping, but they tasted nearly as I wanted them to. Now I'll find some ways to dress them up. More more things that will make my stomach upset, like sour cream and put some cheese on top. I thought about some salsa, but I wanted a baseline, just a plain latka. The pictures aren't social. Maybe you'll find them helpful. The recipe's there too. I think you're very much going to find, um, I'll call my friend now because I think this is the fourth time we're doing this. Um, sometimes we get a little nerdy about superhero stuff and we do start with just that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Dr. Kang and I connect superheroes and mental health with him offering an immense amount of help, maybe for you, but if not for you, someone you know and care about. Hi, Dr. Kang. Hey, Hey, Eric, how are you? (sighs) To be honest, I'm annoyed and ready for my vacation. (laughs) What's, what's got you annoyed? I don't. I don't think I have to ask what's got you ready for vacation. I think we're all ready for vacation. <laughs> uh, no, because vacation. So it's a good thing I'm talking to a mental health professional. I need to find things to do on my vacation, or I will. I will be in a place I don't need to be. Um, other, than, it's just a no. My, my medication changed recently. I don't think. That could certainly be turning my brain into guinea pig food um, this time of year. Not the holidays, but the cold weather. So, Yeah, sure. A N- number of different factors that can definitely influence, you know, kind of like your baseline, how you're feeling, how you're thinking about stuff for sure. Yeah, understood. Yeah. On a, on a personal note, um, I changed I, – I got off of Cymbalta and I was prescribed Pristique to go with my Wellbutrin. Um, and I had found since I've been on it, the Cymbalta was causing me tons of lethargy, uh, came, got, came down on it and it was like a miracle. Uh, it felt so good, but so that led me to wanting to address, uh, some sexual dysfunction, 
um, more libido than anything else. So that's why I tried the Pristique. Got it. Okay. I was going to say, like, typically, you know, you don't make a change unless there's something that you're trying to, to, uh, you know, address in terms of side effects or it's just not working or, or whatever. So Pristique is close enough, but, uh, but potentially different enough in terms of side effect profile. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely worth a shot. Um, Gene, did we, did we get you? I am here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Kang, does this feel awkward that Gene is here with us? Usually it's you and I to <laughs> sit here and talk about superheroes for an hour. <laughs> no, no, not, not awkward at all. You know, what's funny is too, um, you'll love this, Eric. I mean, when we were looking at scheduling this here, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe a week ago or whatever, I was, I was already starting to get anxious because you were going to ask me about like, all the things that have come out here recently. And I was feeling anxious because of how far behind I am on stuff. Uh, like I haven't seen Eternals yet. I haven't seen the Spider-Man movie. I, I, uh, I don't know if you remember this about me, but I, I like notoriously avoid spoilers of all kinds. So like I just finished the Loki series, which I think we actually talked about yeah. last time that we talked. And I'm like just now getting, getting there. I haven't started the Hawkeye show. So I'm just like, I was feeling so anxious because you're going to ask me, and I was, I was going to be embarrassed that no, I am, I am a laggard right now. Don't you're you're <laughs> when you're an Obama fellow and you have your responsibilities, you are okay to be on like a six month delay. Now, whether or not you can <laughs> actually avoid spoilers, which these days means like staying off the internet, that's on you. Yeah, my I have gotten to be very good at like as soon as I see. Uh, like Marvel something or, you know, DC, whatever. I just like immediately avert my eyes. So I've gotten to be pretty darn good at it over the years, but <laughs> not the easiest thing to do. That yeah. that might be better advice to give to anybody for their mental well-being than anything because uh, I just, I tell people, I mean, the algorithms are too smart and everybody's job, is so, much, so, so much of our life, our addiction is being online. And you're right, like, the algorithms track us, see where we go, and then they're like, here, let me give you a spoiler six hours before you watch anything. Yeah, yeah. No, it's other humans' job to know what we're interested in and then to build computer programs that are even more intelligent at, at being aware of that stuff. So, so Gene? It's smartly designed stuff. I don't want to hear any of your Spider-Man spoilers upsetting Dr. Kang's <laughs> Christmas, okay? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel we're pretty safe and in a good spot with that, you guys. So uh, uh, I've, I'll have i leave that uh, Marvel stuff to you. Well, uh, I've been recording. This is all staying in. I'll do the intro. Um, but for everybody else, Gene, uh, th- we do, Dr. Kang and I usually catch up once, twice, maybe three times a year. It's, it's our pandemic hobby, seemingly. Um, yeah. As the outreach manager and my friend of Brightview, what brings you to our nerdy little discussion today? <laughs> well, there you go, Eric. Um, you know I love this stuff, and I'm so glad. I mean, there's things that you're excited about in your career and things you do, and I love being a connector and getting you and Dr. Kane connected to chat about uh, the latest in our field of substance use disorder. Just It truly warms my heart, but... Um, but I'm busy out uh, pounding the pavement, meeting with uh, oh, hospital systems, folks in the criminal justice system, so social service agencies, because I'm sure we'll get into this. The numbers, um, COVID has not been terribly friendly to our population, and um, we're all just out trying to do the best we can to uh, re-engage folks that might have relapsed or to uh, find folks that uh, might be seeking treatment for the first time. But on a personal note, Eric, you know me pretty well. I'm just juggling all the normal stuff, a mother of three and a wife and uh, someone taking care of an elderly father, all the fun we do and things we do outside of the workplace. So I'm just happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you and your insight um, with all this is Dr. Kang and I get kind of like nerdy with mental health stuff, but also um, his side of things and and helping people. Um, some of the, I think, Dr. Kang, the last time we spoke, whether it was like May or April, I think I threw out at you that I had seen something that said suicides, at least from 2020, were surprisingly um, not out of control up, 
But I think we both know that, you know, the data for all of this, everything that, that can be traced back to COVID will not be final for, for many years. And I think we've all now seen, and we can say that this is pretty darn accurate because this was um, A plus B equals C, uh, overdoses due to opioids and substances uh, was just, just skyrocketed both here in the area, Ohio, and nationally. I think that's that's pretty believable. Um, Dr. Kang, what, what, what do we do? What do, where do we start? Yeah, I think for, first is just acknowledging that trend, right? I, I think you, you and I have talked about this for a couple of years now, uh, that, you know, the, the ingredients that are being put into uh, our environment, uh, you know, nationally, locally, globally, however you want to think about it, are probably the worst mix of ingredients that we could have as it pertains to, to people's mental health and uh, whether that's someone who has a mental health condition or, or substance use disorder or doesn't, uh, the, the collective stress that has been placed on people thanks to the pandemic just takes any pre-existing conditions or any pre-existing stressors to a whole nother level. I think, yeah, you know, to your point about a, a, a small reduction in suicide rates in the United States, uh, yes, that is accurate that overall suicide rates decreased in the U.S., uh, last year. Uh, but we've seen similar trends before uh, when we look at uh, overdose rates, right? So we had uh, a significant peak back in 2017. We thought, okay, this is this is Mount Everest here, and we're going to, to only come down from here thanks to all the, the work that, that is being put in and, and funding that is being allocated and what have you. And we did see uh, you know, some, some reasonable trends in various communities. We saw some, some declines and I think we were always cautious and didn't want to overly celebrate because again, when you're coming down from Everest, you're still really high if you come down five or 10% from that. Um, and when we're, when we're looking at our suicide rates, we're talking about a 3% decline from 19 to 20. Uh, obviously we won't have the data for 2020 to, to 2021 for a while, but, um, it, you know, the, what we saw with that slight decline in overdose mortality was followed by a tremendous increase, right? And so way too early to celebrate, I think, uh, across the board. Uh, and, and again, even when you have those small declines, their relative, uh, the relative trend is still unfortunately and tragically up and to the right. So what we're now seeing, uh, thanks to, to the rolling 12-month reporting, is just, I think, more rapid insight into overdose mortality. And, and so I, I think you're alluding to how, you know, the last reported 12-month period passed 100,000 Americans who died of overdoses for the first time ever. Uh, so that's a terrifying thing, uh, given how that's a 30% increase from, you know, from prior what we thought was a peak. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wait... Uh, in, in anxious anticipation about what our data will tell us on the suicide front and everything else. But I, I can't imagine it will be great news. Uh, and so I think, you know, to Gene's point, from, from our, our standpoint, our effort is to say, how can we as rapidly innovate as possible? How can we bring as much, uh, you know, quality treatment to as many people as we possibly can with, like, with a sense of urgency, knowing that uh, even if we see some small changes to the good, we're still not in a great place. And, uh, that could, that could quickly start to come apart, and, and we could continue the trend in a, in a worse direction if we don't remain vigilant and and engaged. Uh, I want to ask you both this question, um, Doctor Kang. I don't know what your day looks like. You don't see people as much anymore. You've got a lot of administrative duties and face of the face of Brightview duties, uh, right? Yeah, no, I, I, can, I actually can see patients and do occasionally. Uh, it's more of an on-demand type of format. So for me. I don't actually hold a caseload the way that I used to, which is really unique for me because, uh, you know, that, that was the, the typical start to my day was seeing patients all morning and half the afternoon. Uh, but I think now, now as we've grown, we've got over 250 clinicians, uh, over 80 various medical providers, like the, the prescribing staff that we have, physicians and what have you. Uh, and, and about the same number of nurses now, actually, too, we, we have so many clinicians who are taking care of the patients that keeping a cohesive and structured program model uh, ends up becoming more of my focus. And then uh, I think what, what uh, we now think about, too, is in program design. What, what do we need to do 
uh, more in terms of services for our patients in order to be a truly comprehensive provider. So what services do we need to bring to the table and how do we do those services in a way that lines up with uh, best practices in the science, with our uh, innovative philosophy towards treatment? So I think that that kind of program design focus is is definitely where more of my mind share has been going. So when we think about telehealth, how do we do that with high quality? Uh, the literature isn't settled on like a full-on telehealth addiction treatment model of care. Uh, however, there seems to be some really promising results when it comes to a hybridized model, which which is what we're deploying in, right? We say, okay, science isn't settled over here. Let's not get too cavalier with it, but let's make sure that we, we use uh, strategies to make treatment accessible to folks. So let's have a, an intentional and thoughtful design around telehealth. Same with methadone treatment. I think uh, uh, certainly a, a, a treatment solution that has uh, quite a strong bit of, uh, of science behind it. Uh, and the really exciting thing, I think, with methadone and with buprenorphine as it pertains to the treatment of people with opioid use disorder is just that there is ongoing development in terms of the scientific literature. If someone has been using fentanyl, what's the best solution? Or is it more of a dosing question? And so taking those uh, uh uh, pathways and, and making those kinds of areas of focus really front and center. That That's really become uh, where more of my time goes. And then monitoring our trends and providing feedback to our teams to say, hey, we're, are we following what we expect to see or, or do we need to do more education and development, which, uh, which I think is really exciting because it helps to, to steer us uh, in a way that delivers uh, quality outcomes to patients on a much more consistent basis. Can you explain a little bit more what methadone is? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it is, uh, <laughs> my mind goes right to the technical term. I'm like, you know, for, from a medication standpoint, it is a, a full mu agonist, which means that it fully activates the receptors in the brain where uh, opioid uh, medications or uh, illicit opioid substances would activate. So uh, it's a controlled dose of a medication that fires the uh, reward center in the brain. Uh, and because it's medically monitored and delivered by uh, a licensed provider, it's a safer alternative than someone using medication uh, or using illicit drugs, uh, what they think is medication, likely to be illicit drugs or outright illicit drugs from the street. And so it, what medication does, like with any chronic condition, is provides a stabilizing impact on brain chemistry, on brain functioning, uh, and then all of the other various physiological symptoms that can come with uh, withdrawal or things like that. And so what methadone is, is uh, it's an FDA-approved medication for the treatment of people with opioid use disorder. It provides a stabilizing impact on uh, uh, on uh, brain functioning and allows the person to uh, uh, have some space to do the work of psychotherapy and counseling. I think, uh, since I've been familiar with it, the criticism of it was um, it can and please correct me if I'm wrong and obviously what you talked about how we're going to have new data all the time with COVID for the love of everything we should all know with the world that we live in now more information as more of it comes out we're going to be able to make better conclusions um, I think one of the the early criticisms of methadone I heard was that it, it too can be addictive and you're maybe swapping one addiction for another but I know you said that this is administered by a health professional but can you talk a little bit about the criticisms of methadone yeah absolutely and I think that those those types of criticisms are oftentimes where those questions are brought up about addiction treatment in general not not even necessarily specific to methadone. It certainly does come up in, in, with regard to that one medication, but I think in general these questions come up that, hey, aren't you exchanging one drug for another or something like that? And so I think it, you know, to respond to that, what we think of is that, that our body may be physically dependent on a medication to function in a specific place in our body, right, to, to maintain normal levels of functioning. So uh, similarly, someone who has diabetes is physically dependent on insulin in order for their body to function properly. Right? There's a specific pathway in the body uh, that is uh, impacted by the use of insulin that keeps the person healthy and feeling well, uh, physi physiologically and mentally feeling more stable, right? 
Uh, and so similarly, methadone or buprenorphine products function inside of a person's body to stabilize pathways, obviously different pathways. These are pathways in the brain, uh, but they provide a stabilizing impact. So, so the body uh, is using the medication to achieve that stability, uh, but the person is not addicted to the medication, just like someone with diabetes is not addicted to their insulin. Addiction is a much more complex uh, you know, syndrome, if you will, where there's behavioral changes uh, that, that uh, typically accompany the, the condition, uh, and it, it is uh, oftentimes accompanied by consequences, social, legal, vocational, et cetera. There's uh, uh, quite a bit of, uh, uh, of other symptoms and behavioral patterns that you see with the addiction itself, whereas someone, if they're receiving medication, they actually can live a quite fulfilling life and be uh, an integrated member of their family, be a productive uh, employee at their job. And again, it's really more about stability and health at that point than anything else. Um, in the similar vein of methadone, but probably not societally, culturally acceptable, I guess is the right word, um, where methadone is at this moment, um, and again, we try things, we see if they work. Some good ideas don't always work out. Um, thoughts on things that are becoming a little bit more accessible. Uh, I know that there was something in New York City that had a terrible headline in the New York Post a couple of weeks ago. Um, safe injection sites, Dr. Kang? Yeah, I think when we, when we think about harm reduction in general, whether it's a, a safe injection site like the uh, two that were uh, uh, opened here in New York City recently, or when we think about syringe exchange programs, we have a number of those operational in Ohio, right? Uh, or when we think about Narcan distribution, which is uh, a, a large pillar, both, all, all of these things, by the way, are large pillar, pillars of the federal administration response now to the opioid epidemic in particular. Uh, harm reduction was not a key pillar uh, 20 years ago uh, in the Bush administration, it was much more of an extension of prior like Reagan era policies around just say no and, and that kind of thing. And I think our, our federal and state and local responses have shifted to reflect what the science is telling us is it is that these harm reduction strategies do in fact save lives and convert people to treatment. Uh, and when that treatment is delivered in a comprehensive, high quality way, you can actually generate some, some, uh, uh, some very compelling outcomes for people, not just that they stay alive. Uh, and so I think that, that uh, you know, what they're doing in New York is certainly going to be controversial because it is new uh, in the United States. Uh, but uh, when we look at, uh, uh, at the impact, again, on mortality in the short term, keeping people alive, and then uh, on broader outcomes in terms of getting folks back to work, getting them back with their families, living a productive life, uh, you can see that it's it's one piece of a much broader long-term strategy to get us out of this. Like you said, addiction um, is extremely complicated because of how unique each of our brains are and how they react to certain things and our environmental experiences that influence that. I guess it's the reverse of... Uh, my friend started a, a meal prep service and he gave out tons of free food and now he has customers. He's like, it's the, it's the age old, you know, drug addiction problem. It's, it's Facebook, it's free. And now here there, there's ads, you know, give somebody a little bit of something, open that gateway and there can be negative consequences or, or positive consequences. And I hope maybe some of the messaging of that, of harm reduction will be understood by more of the, the public at large. Like, this person didn't dive into a full-on a full-on um, disease or disorder. It went little by little, and the reverse can be true. Like, hey, just check out the, the safe injection site. Um, and that little door is kicked open just enough where maybe we can save that person like you mentioned. Absolutely. It's the same thing, again, with syringe exchange and with Narcan distribution, right? When we think of a syringe exchange, People oftentimes ask these questions of like, are we somehow facilitating substance use? Is, is that county public health department facilitating substance use if they're, you know, giving away syringes and that kind of thing? Well, if we think about what's happening there, the person uh, is is coming to the syringe exchange uh, potentially because they're concerned about acquiring an infectious disease, right? By by continuously using and sharing needles. Uh, a person could acquire HIV or hepatitis. And so 
by using uh, new syringes, you uh, avoid that risk, right? And so if this person is coming here to the syringe exchange, as an example, uh, maybe they're concerned about their health. Maybe if we treat them with dignity and respect, we can uh, link them to treatment. And in fact, with the CDC data, uh, which is uh, demonstrated for several years now, uh, indicates to us is that folks who participate in a comprehensive syringe exchange service, like what I'm describing, are three times as likely to go to treatment and stay in treatment for their substance use disorder. Yeah. Um, I mm -hmm. guess the analogy is com comparative to how we were growing up and the outrage. How dare... Dr. Kang, how old are you? Uh, I turned 40 this year. Oh, happy birthday. Wow. Happy All right. Jean's um, <laughs> still the young one here. She's a, a beautiful 29-year-old. Oh. So, Jean, this will go over your head. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm yeah, 42. Sure. But, Dr. Kang, we grew up in the high school and even the middle-age era, and I'm sure that there were some maybe appalled deeply religious people of you can't teach them sex education you can't give them condoms they're just going to go out there and have even more sex well they're going to do it they're going to do it anyway so let's make sure that they're educated about it yeah absolutely and and so i think the the idea of uh of challenging some of these like norms or myths that folks have and and you know using some of the the scientific literature to inform what we're doing is is essential if we're going to find our way to the other side um, I want to ask you a couple of more broad mental health questions because um, we might have even begun to talk about this in the springtime. Um, you can't get in to see a therapist or a counselor right now, and I'm sorry for speaking so broadly or generally, but the ones that I know, like, I can't refer anybody anymore because all my people that I know are booked up, um, and there's protocols now with, with COVID coming back with a new variant, and some people won't do uh, virtual. Um so one of the things I keep coming to is as life becomes more of a vice for so many people, not being able to find help, get in to see help, or even help themselves, um, when you run into somebody like that who is just so unwilling, they refuse to hear you out on Narcan or safe injection sites, um, or they say, well, therapy's not going to work for me, or I, I did medication before, it's and they're just so, and I realize they're in a state of crisis. I've been there. When someone is so obstinate about wanting their wanting their mental health and their their life to improve, but being unwilling to say yes to a particular idea, how do you get through to that person? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I think my general uh you know, reaction to it is, hey, we've all been there, right? Uh as the person in question <laughs> that you're describing, right? Like we, we all make goals for ourselves or identify a potential like problem, quote unquote, that we want to fix or do better about and this kind of thing. And yet uh, we're humans and almost by definition, we are ambivalent about change. Right? I mean, you're like, hey, I want to do it today and then I don't want to do it tomorrow. Or some people describe it as being hot and cold. I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror man, I'm going to eat better and exercise <laughs> when it comes time to do it, right? Or or when the alarm goes off the next day, it's like, oh, man, I can just sleep in an extra 30 minutes, right? And so that, that hot, cold ambivalence is a human kind of a thing, right? Now, when we talk about some of the specifics here that you're talking about, you know, uh, someone's feeling depressed or they feel like their alcohol use has gone to it to a level that's that's problematic, and it's like, well, have you have you thought about going to see somebody about that? And and we can have a lot of resistance there. I think uh, the, the important thing to to look at is what's what might be driving that, right? Sometimes folks are just afraid. There's stigma. Stigma is still a real thing, even though I think we've done a great job as a society to start challenging these norms and conversations like this. I'm so grateful for because I think this helps to get the conversation out there into the general awareness more. But still, folks can harbor that that fear or that that. Uh, that self stigma, like, Hey, you know, I've got a, I've got a real problem now if I'm having to seek professional help and that kind of thing. And for some folks that can be a tough thing to admit if that, if that is uh, internalized as part of their identity for other folks, like you said, some folks will say, Hey, I, I've been to treatment before. It didn't work. Uh, and so, uh, I think, a, a key reminder is that not all treatments created equal, right? Yeah. So we have a pretty wide definition in this country of what qualifies as addiction treatment. I mean, I'll just speak to what we do at Brightview, right? That uh, we offer quite a comprehensive program with medical, psychological, and social services. And uh, we're not riding horses on a beach anywhere, right? N now, in some places, that's called addiction treatment. 
and it sounds like fun, but I don't know what that does for someone's substance use disorder, right? And so the definition of treatment can be very different. And uh, the, I think one of the great injustices of not having standardized uh, behavioral health care in this country enough uh, is, is this sense of defeat that people get from engaging in treatment that isn't evidence-based. Then they feel like, oh, that didn't work for me. Treatment's not going to work. I'm hopeless. I'm a hopeless case, that kind of thing, right? So uh, I think as we endeavor to, to educate more folks on what is treatment, what should it look like, and hey, that thing over there isn't treatment, it's not going to be as helpful, uh, I, think, I think we do a great service by getting that kind of education out in the world. But even on a more fundamental level, I think to your question, hey, what motivates the person, right? Yeah. Uh, if, they're, if they're thinking about making a change, and again, we, we can look at all of ourselves, especially this time of year. Uh, I don't know about you. I've already started to work on my resolutions for next year, and I half laugh at myself thinking, how long am I going to keep some of these up? Uh, but I actually look back at mine from this past year. I, I did okay with some of them, you know? And so uh, I'm giving myself a little bit of grace as I go into next year saying, hey, I'm better off than I was last year in these ways. Here's the things that I want to double down on maybe, or I didn't put as much intentionality behind. But motivation, right? Like if you think you've got uh, a problem, whether it's, again, depression, anxiety, substance use, whatever it is, what's your motivation for changing that? Right? Is it is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it something else? And so, using that as the anchor point to say, well, what are my options then? And is formal treatment one of them? Is that worth it? Uh, is that motivational thing? Is that worth it for me to make this effort? And sometimes people will say no. They're not ready for for treatment yet. They're not ready to make the investment, make the time, and that kind of thing. But uh, many times, folks are when when they can latch onto that motivational angle. I was. Hey, Dr. Go ahead, Gene. I was just gonna. I just want to jump in because I I love listening to you guys first. But I what came to mind, Eric and Dr. Kang, was our peer support folks, and uh, again the fact that people can and do often relapse, and we don't kick them out of the program. And so some of the fundamental things we're doing differently. And I I'm the person out in the field, right? And so I see our folks in the center, and um, I just think so highly not only of our clinicians and everyone, but our peer support person and what they're able to do on someone's journey when they're resistant. So I don't know, Dr. Kang, if you can enhance that thought, but um, I just think we're kind of cutting edge in how much we believe in that. Yeah, I think I might just take some of that stuff for granted sometimes, right? That uh, that we would never kick someone out of treatment for struggling with the condition for which they're seeking our help. I mean, we don't do that in any other area of healthcare, right? If, if I were to go to my primary care provider for diabetes care management and I wasn't dieting and exercising the way that they said, and if my hemoglobin A1C, my, you know, basically a long-term measure of blood sugar, if that was elevated, they wouldn't say, all right, now nah, get out of here. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're not welcome back or that kind of thing. Uh, they wouldn't call my blood dirty, right? They, they would, they would uh, interpret me as needing more support, more services, uh, heck, actually, Eric, they might have me see a psychologist <laughs> because <laughs> I'm struggling to make some of those behavior changes. And, and I'm only half joking because I actually used to do that job. Right? I used to be what's yeah, called a behavioral right. health consultant in primary care uh, who would help patients work on just those kinds of things. Uh, and diabetes care management was actually a big focus uh, of ours. Right. And so uh, we, we apply those same kinds of compassionate and I think typical practices uh, that we do in every other area of healthcare, we we apply it in addiction treatment. But to Gene's point, that's that's still innovative. That that's cutting edge because unfortunately, a lot of programs operate in a more antiquated kind of way. So I think that like we're trying to set an example that there's a different way of of doing this work uh, from a from the angle of being compassionate and respectful towards patients, and then also uh, Eric, to your point about playing the long game, right? It, it oftentimes takes years to develop a substance use disorder. Uh, folks aren't getting out of it in a week. Or yeah. a couple of months, many times, right? It takes takes a, a sustained effort, and we want to be there for folks in the long term to do that. To add to what you're, you're both saying, um, and I think somebody might have said the D word, dignity. Um, I, Gene, I got invited back. To, do you know Robert with the Mental Health Board? I know Robert Casper Casper's act very well. Yeah. Nice man, known him um, for years. Uh, I Robert had reached out to me to come talk to the cadets at the police academy the other day, and it had been an entire pandemic since, since I'd been out there, and um, I changed my tone without being very agenda driven. I'm not anti-police or anything like that. But one of the lines I was pretty happy to share with them and, you know, I patted myself on the back for it was 
Um, something I heard somebody say recently, like nobody asked for an addiction disease in the same way, like what you said, Dr. King, nobody asked for diabetes. Nobody asked for cancer. Um, treat these people in our community who you might encounter who look different from you uh, or maybe low income. Like nobody asked for these problems. And Dr. Kang, I used your word that I, I credit you with our first discussion, like in May of last year, what you said, grace, um, like let's treat people with a little more grace. And that's what you guys are both talking about when it comes to how someone is treated at, at Brightview. Um, and then one more thing to go into this part of the discussion was, Gene, you talked about how you're not going to get better every day. Um, that's that's true and applicable, applicable to everything. Um, you're not going to take steps up every day, whether it's in the gym or at work or with whatever, whatever other issue. Like, you will go back some days. Linear uh, success in anything is not linear as we wish it to be. Yeah, I'll, I'll just yeah. disclose. I mean, one of the things that I, like many others, have been working on this year is around consistently exercising and there's a specific target uh, of weight that I wanted to lose this year. Right? I, I wanted to lose the COVID-15 as it were, right? Not to make light of the situation, but I think the stress literally manifested on my body, right? And yeah. so I wanted to, to to lose that weight. And I'll tell you, I, I use an app to track the weight. I actually, you know, like weigh myself every morning to be as, as intentional about it as I can. And that graph is not down and to the right uh, every day. It is over the course of this year. Yeah. <laughs> and so to your point, I feel very good about the progress I've made. Uh, and there's, uh, there's more work I want to do next year on it. But, man, when you look at the day-to-day, that thing is whipsawing up and down. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I want to go back because when I was asking the question about what do you – do with somebody who is just so obstinate because I've run into two of those situations. One with a, a mom who uh, lost her son to suicide and she's concerned that uh, she will lose her other son and she will lose her own wits about her. Um, I put her in, in the right directions and I, I think I was able to help her out. But just over this weekend, uh, someone that I knew from the first time I lived here had connected with me because of you know my, my advocacy and interest in mental health. And she was just, it was like, both of your parents, it was like dealing with your child. Go to bed. Why? Uh, you've got to eat your vegetables. Why? Or no, it was why or no to everything. And I've run into a lot of people like that as, you know, the vice of COVID. COVID has ramped up. And I guess it, I, I can equate it to... Um, arguing with somebody on the internet who you don't know or trying to be rational or reasonable with an irrational or unreasonable unreasonable person. It's like talking to a wall in some cases. So Dr. King, I I always try to do when these arise, like what's that person's motivation? Um, And I can usually hone in on that, but when it's so blurry to them and they become so nihilistic, it can be very challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's why this is something that you know, when we think about motivational interviewing, there is professional training uh, that that uh, clinicians receive in order to provide that as an intervention. And we we practice it as opposed to saying that we've uh, mastered it. Right. Because uh, we're talking about humans and, and people are complex. Uh, and, you know, and and, uh, and frankly, none of this is uh, is effective 100 percent of the time to, like, convince someone to go take some action. So. I think sometimes, you know, when, I, when I'm engaged with someone like that, uh, you know, who, who, I just wonder, you know, what do you need from me right now? Right. And so sometimes uh, the person isn't needing direction or advice and they simply just want to be heard. Yeah. And if that's the case, then, you know, my my strategy is going to change then. Right. I'm not saying, hey, here's three referrals and here's where you should where you should call first for the following reasons. It's instead more about just being present with the person and ensuring that they know that I genuinely care. Uh, and I think what, what sometimes surprises me is that uh, just in doing that, uh, you can actually move someone towards that change process more quickly uh, than, yeah. than going right to the, hey, you should go do the next this next thing uh, yeah. in order to get better or whatever it is. You know? and, and if I can add to that, Eric and Dr. King, I, it takes my mind again. I go off in little directions to our call center and who works in our call center, because Eric, you know this, we've talked for years on this, but that touch and that empathetic listening and the fact that some of the folks in our call center are in long-term recovery, the relatability, I think all of that is so important. Otherwise, 
people might just have that moment they call they they don't feel like a human being they don't feel anything more than like a number and we lose them again so i don't know dr kang if you want to elaborate on that but these are some of the things when i'm out in the field talking to folks um, that i bring up and i also strongly suggest every referral partner i work with to get the permission of the patient to get the appointment scheduled now we know half those people probably won't show up the first time but i can't have the team follow up with that person if i can't identify them so kind of doing better than waving a pamphlet at someone and hoping they're going to take action as long as even if that person is saying, well, if that makes you feel better, mom or whoever to set the appointment, go ahead, but I'm not sure I'm going, that that linkage is really critical because then at least we have a shot at really working with them. So Doc- Dr. Kang, jump in anytime, but those are a couple of things that popped in my mind. Let me, let me hop in. Dr. Kang, you gave me my answer and, and I knew it, but I just like so much in therapy or counseling, I just needed to hear it from an, an objective, unbiased uh, person rather than my, my own. And it was just listening right. to someone um, like this person who uh, I've reconnected with. I have to remember, much like weight loss, uh, I'm not going to lose 10 pounds overnight. I might not be able to give this person the salve they need in one night or one conversation. But over the course of three or four, perhaps they'll become more trusting um, similar to the safe injection sites, and it's a, it's a bit of a gateway or something even more relatable for all of us, um, those ads that we're constantly battered with on Google and Facebook and whatnot, they know, they know the science. The first or second time we see something that we've already kind of browsed at, we're not going to do it, but the fifth time, heck yeah, I'm going over to that site and getting out my debit card. So it's just listening and maybe being patient. And like I often tell people kind of quietly, we can't save everybody, and we shouldn't feel bad if we put an effort out towards trying to help people to the best that we can. Um, but the people that we we do help will be thankful, and there's a a wildfire effect to that. Those people, like Gene, the people that you and Dr. Kang both help, they will go out and and be evangelists for the cause as well. So, in short, Dr. Kang, it was just listen, shut up, and listen, and be helpful. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it is very compelling to just think about that idea. When when we feel seen and heard, when our emotions are validated, that allows us to take action, right? And so to Gene's example, if someone were to call uh, us for services, like I said, folks are afraid. Hey, I've tried treatment before. It hasn't worked for me. Or what are they going to say? I feel sick now. Are they going to be able to get me in quickly? And, you know, for our team to treat folks with uh, with that type of compassionate touch, can really get folks uh, uh, more motivated to to take those steps and actually uh, begin the treatment process and and start to feel better, begin that recovery journey, as it were. And 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 to the point, if they if they don't make it in uh, to that appointment, they're they're in our system and we're able to reach out to them proactively. And again, with that same compassionate touch, hey, if you're ready now, we're here for you. You know, I have a, a lighter question, but certainly more more timely. And uh, Gene, I think you and I. Uh, bandied this back and forth. Um, but we have loved ones, people we care about, people we want to make feel part of our world. Um, visit us or be a part of what we have going on for the holidays, for Christmas, New Year's, even into the New Year. Holiday parties is going to January. Um, how can we involve people who might be battling an addiction, whether actively or not actively, kind of wishing the addiction would go away, whatever it may be. How can we involve these people in, in the social activities that are important for all of us, but make sure we don't cross any boundaries where we put them down a bad path or we can set them at ease saying, look, yeah, there's going to be alcohol here, but or whatever else, but I, I want you to feel safe. We, we want you here. How do you How do we treat these experiences over the next couple of weeks? Well, I am going to jump in and defer to Dr. Kang, and Eric, you're just cracking me up because just yesterday, and we have this this recorded, so I will get it over to you. Dr. Kang and one of our peer support uh, team members did an hour-long virtual seminar on just that topic for people in addiction or people uh, that have folks on, in recovery. How do you help? What are you supposed to do? What are some of the things you should think of um, in case uh, you need to remove yourself from a situation that's um, maybe not going to help you. So Dr. Kang, you got, since you just did this yesterday for an hour, I'll uh, please jump in and uh, we'll send Eric that uh, link. Yeah, yeah. Slightly different spin on it since our target audience there was, was uh, you know, let's say someone in recovery or someone with a substance use disorder or 
someone who just may be concerned about their drinking or substance use or that kind of thing. So in this case, Eric, you're asking, hey, if I'm, let's say I'm planning a family gathering, let's say I'm planning a party at, uh, at work or at home or whatever it might be, uh, how can I be inclusive? How can I make sure that folks feel safe and comfortable? I got to tell you, man, just even asking the question gets you started, right? Just the fact that that is something in your awareness, uh, if, if uh, for anyone who's listening, if you're, if you're planning an event, just having that question on the table, right? So which of my loved ones or social connections or whatever it might be, you know, if it's, if it's a work thing, which of the team members may be impacted here? And, and uh, you can go so far as directly asking someone, hey, what do you need to feel comfortable? What do you need to feel safe? What can we do uh, in order to, to facilitate that as much as possible? And it could be that, you know, Eric, to your example, having alcohol there is okay. It could be that limiting it in some capacity or having alternative things to engage in uh, is key. Someone could say, hey, if, if you can keep me away from, uh, you know, having to talk to Aunt Sally, uh, that, that'll keep me comfortable just enough right there, right? And so I think just opening the door to, for, for this to even be a topic of conversation, and again, it just helps people feel seen and heard uh, and helps people feel like, uh, like you want to support them and, and, and attend to their needs. And ultimately, when we're thinking about the holidays, when we're thinking about parties, isn't that the whole point anyway, right? And so, uh, so, so what a great way to, to be inclusive. It's just simply to ask the questions and be aware that this could even be a thing. Um, I want to get some, some more free advice if I, I can pick your brain because, again, uh, a lot of these types of questions uh, with depression-type things, especially, well, for this time of year, I know a lot of people get down for maybe not feeling uh, a part of a social circle or having lost someone in the past and it resonates deeply with people. Um, depression might not be as acute. It can be, but I know a lot of people reach out to me uh, about anxiety situations. What's a, uh, what's a good way to try to eliminate that that anxiety that can cripple you or, or panic you. It can even be just social anxiety. Maybe some people are avoiding gatherings because there's going to be 30 people instead of just 13. Is there, uh, is there an almost immediate way that you can kind of switch that off in your brain? There's a girl that I chat with a little bit on Twitter about mental health, and she said her, uh, she says her dad is a doctor, uh, but not a, a mental health professional, and he told her when she has anxious situations like that or she feels a panic attack, stick her face in a bowl of cold water. And it sounds kind of ridiculous, but I can totally see how that can really reset the wiring in your brain and, and cool you out just, no pun intended, cool you out just a little bit um, to get to, to, to assuage that anxiety enough for you to exist. So shorter question, how do you get rid of an anxiety attack? Yeah, I'll, I'll respond in a, in a few different ways. So first is when it comes to anxiety, you've got to set some reasonable expectations from the outset, right? So if your expectation is, hey, how am I going to eliminate my anxiety? Uh, that I would start right there and say, you're not going to do that. Right? Yeah. You're, if you're a human being, you're going to have anxiety, right? So all of us have anxiety. All of us carry some measure of it. And obviously it goes up and down in different contexts and over time and whatever. But uh, you know, walk into it knowing, Hey, I'm going to be anxious, <laughs> right? That's a good place to start. Uh, because then you're not surprised when you are, uh, because I think when folks get surprised, it's like, Oh man, I had this goal. I wasn't going to be anxious. Now my hands are sweaty. I'm starting to, you know, breathe in a different kind of way. I'm going to freak out. And then it just starts the whole cascade and said, Hey, I'm going to be anxious. That's part of the human experience. Give, I'm going to give myself a little grace, you know, as we've said here a couple of times. Uh, now when that happens, what am I going to do? Right. And so uh, practicing some skills to keep your anxiety level is, is I think, important. Entering the environment. Uh, so let's let's just use the example. I'm, I'm going to a party. There's going to be 30 people there uh, and I'm going to be nervous because I don't like being around so many people. Right. Well, let's set a good foundation. Let's make sure I've, ate, uh, I've eaten something before I go. Uh, so I'm not showing up hungry. Uh, let's make sure uh, you know I do some breathing in the car before I go in. So I'm not walking in angry or flustered or that kind of thing. Uh, if, I, if I'm going to uh, something where I think I might feel disconnected from others, haven't seen people, don't know anybody, whatever it might be, uh, I, I risk feeling lonely, right? So uh, let me talk to someone before I go, uh, social connection, a friend, right? And let them know, hey, I might call you after this party uh, or after this event 
just because I know I'm going to feel anxious when I'm there. I might feel lonely when I'm there. I just want to have someone to talk to. Uh, and, you know, ask ask for permission or get some support lined up and that kind of thing. And, and try to have some good rest, right? Ha- having slept the night before and not being tired uh, is a good way to, uh, to set a foundation. So don't show up hungry. Don't show up angry or otherwise activated. Uh, have a plan for if you're feeling lonely and, uh, and try not to show up uh, too tired and that kind of thing. Sets a good foundation. Uh, and I think the other main uh, uh, thing that I have folks think about, two things. One is uh, catastrophizing. So oftentimes we, uh, we think about, hey, I'm going to go to this event and uh, I'm going to say the wrong thing. It's going to be embarrassing. People are going to notice. People are going to laugh. I'm going to look silly. Uh, and we literally think of the most catastrophic series of events that, that could happen. So I'm going to go to this party. 30 people are going to be there. I'm going to say something, uh, you know, inappropriate, or I'm going to say something dumb and everyone's going to notice and, and, uh, then I'll be the laughing stock. Right. Well, let's, let's, let's play that out. What if I'm having a conversation and I just shout out bananas, right? I mean, what's going to happen? People might look over for a second, right? But they probably won't even really think much of it and they'll, they'll go about their business. Uh, so catastrophizing is like a, like a cognitive distortion is what we call it, but it's like a mental trap that we get ourselves caught in. Uh, and, and one in particular, when it comes to social settings is this spotlight effect that I've kind of alluded to there where, Hey, everybody is looking at me right now, when we stand back and think about it, really, nobody's looking at anybody. Right? <laughs> they're, they're probably looking at the person who they're talking to and they don't really notice much else of what's going on. Uh, but when we have social anxiety in particular, you have that feeling of all the eyes are on me, everyone's scoping me out, and they're evaluating me. And uh, in particular, they're evaluating me negatively. So being aware of these thoughts, I think, is important. Starting to challenge some of those notions is important so that we don't get ourselves into that catastrophic place. Uh, but yeah, the, the idea of putting your, uh, your face in a bowl <laughs> of ice water, it does actually deactivate <laughs> the vagus nerve there a little yeah. bit. And so it, it buys you a little bit of time. It does cool yeah. you off. So you can be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go and, you know, uh, take some deep breaths or I'm going to get some space or that kind of thing. Now, if you're at a party, you probably don't want to do that. Cause I'll guarantee everyone will look at you if, if in the middle of the room, you throw your face in a bowl of ice water, but, uh, you can approximate it in a few different ways, right? You can go outside. It's, it's likely going to be somewhat cold outside. You could, Hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom and no one's going to be like, what do you mean? You got to go to the bathroom. Like, <laughs> Hey, I got to go to the bathroom, right? And throw some cold water in your face and that kind of thing. It buys yourself buys yourself a little bit of space so that you don't go into the descent of a, of a full on like panic attack kind of. You thing. you mentioned catastrophizing, and I didn't. I came across that word in around. 2005 or 2006, and I forget how I stumbled across it. I don't think I've ever uh, revealed this to you before. Gene knows about it because it was part of it was one of the bedrocks of my my TED Talk speech uh, four years. Yeah, four, I remember. Four, I do four remember. years ago, Gene. Yeah, um, I know, Eric. We go way back. I remember I, that TED Talk, and you rocked it, buddy. Uh, Dr. Ken, catastrophizing from from Dr. David Burns' book, the Feeling Good Handbook, where that was one of the things that. Um, that I learned that, that you do that. And I'll add to what you said about going to that party. The, the one of the well, two takeaways that I remember from reading that, that passage about catastrophizing and a party specifically is one, no one really cares about you Two, If you need to go another <laughs> level with it, the fears that you're having, mostly everybody else at the party is feeling the same darn thing. So everybody's in the same boat, but that and um, should statements and every other cognitive distortion that uh, I needed to literally get through my 20s with, I learned mostly from from that book. And without learning a lot of those CBT foundations, it's very likely if I had not made it to medication, I would not be sitting here right now because those kinds of things would have eaten me alive. They sure do, yeah. Uh, Dr. Burns' work is is tremendous. He's written so much uh, excellent material for folks to be able to consume. Uh, and they can do that of their own accord, right? You can buy the books on Amazon and, and read the things that he's produced. But yeah, probably about 50 cognitive distortions, the the thought processes, the mental traps that get us stuck and that kind of thing. Uh, but absolutely, if you go to a party, there's 30 people there, everyone's feeling some measure of anxiety. That's why, again, starting with the notion that, hey, it's a human experience, I'm going to have anxiety, I'm not going to eliminate it. And, and yet, absolutely, to your point, others are going to experience the same thing. Uh, I, I had a patient once that I used to joke with about because 
you know, we, we talked about all these strategies and, and he actually was quite courageous in deploying a lot of them. And uh, he came in one, one session and told me that, uh, you know, he had used the idea of buying himself some time to go outside or to go to the bathroom and found that the, the easiest one to have a cover story around was to go to the bathroom, right? And so he called it hiding in the bathroom, even though he'd only gone there for a couple of minutes. But, you know, we would joke that like, okay, if you feel yourself getting escalated, just go hide in the bathroom for a couple of minutes. Right? <laughs> he would go do that. He would, he would take a couple of minutes. He would come out and be able to reset himself. And so, so some really pragmatic and simple things. And again, no one's going to notice uh, if, we, if we use them when we're in a social setting. Uh, last thing I'm going to ask of you, uh, there's been a lot of challenging school situations lately, and, and I, I mean, a, a lot falls underneath a lot. Um, I have lots of school counselor friends who were overwhelmed before uh, COVID really set in, and I thought kids are pretty courageous and resilient during the first half of all this, but I know it's been a challenging first half of the school year. Um, for those that are school counselors or just teachers in in school where kids these days, they're, they're bringing a lot of problems, a lot of stressors and anxiety and depression and all the other things that kids think uh, to the classroom because maybe it can't get managed at home. Any advice to those in the educational system uh, to help these kids and themselves through these times? Yeah, I think the last thing you said there is one of the, the, the really most compelling things I've observed over the last couple of years with, with our youth that really gives me some hope and everything is is that help that help yourselves kind of approach. So it's become increasingly more uh, commonplace, dare I say acceptable, right? For, uh, for youth to be able to talk about this kind of stuff. Again, the, the, the uh, trend that we have with reducing stigma, building awareness, I think it's catapulted to a whole nother level of progress when we see how our youth are interacting with each other and making it safe to talk about uh, all the things that you and I and Gene are talking about today. And so, uh, so uh, you know, if a school or if a district uh, doesn't have uh, any type of formal structure around uh, uh, students supporting one another, uh, there are, are definitely some avenues that, that folks can take that, that uh, doesn't just rely on, like, hiring more counselors or building more capacity in that regard, that the ability for uh, uh, humans, you know, as social creatures to be able to help each other and help ourselves, I, it can't be undersold. And I think what we're seeing with our youth is a great degree of interest to do that. So so I think that's some really exciting stuff uh, and, and would, would encourage uh, administrators to think about how do we help students get this off the ground? Like, just create the space for them to do it and they'll take it from there. Right? Yeah. And if, if more formality is needed, great. There are some resources in that regard. But uh, sometimes it's just as simple as making the space. Yeah, I, I I tell a lot of people this, depending on who I'm speaking with. Uh, the police cadets last week, who were in their their 20s and whatnot, I'm like, congratulations! You're probably the last generation of uh, mental health having a major stigma about it. Because when Gene, when I'm out with Jen and stuff, and we're in middle schools. Yep. Yeah. These eighth graders, sixth graders, they have no qualms about talking about mental health. Now, these kids were like three years removed from eating glue, so their brains aren't fully formed yet, but they will at least, they will, they will at least, I know I'm right too, they will at least talk you, about the stuff. Yeah, Eric, you do a great job. And with Jen and the Suicide Prevention Coalition, I mean, Dr. Kang up here, there, there's two faces leading that, and it's Jen Wakefield and, and, uh, our good friend here on the phone and they are getting into all those schools and their presentations are amazing. And um, I'm just so proud to be part of that and just helping I can, but I'm telling you uh, the word is out and the things that they're accomplishing in our schools. Uh, tremendous. Things are Excellent. so super tight right now. Um, one of my uh, high school administrator friends uh, had their counselor reach out to me and they were asking, uh, if, if I knew anybody who wanted some part-time counseling hours because the kids need more people to talk to. And in my earlier point, I told them they have a better chance of walking on the sun uh, seven days a week because you're just not going to find that person. I did say I, I was going to offer, I call it uh, mental health triage. I said, I'll come in there a couple hours a week and chat with some of these kids or just listen to them. And no, I don't have certifications. I can easily get those, but you know my background and, uh, I might, I might be all you have right now. So, Dr. Kang, to your point, 
one of the good things about living in times like these is we get to try a lot of things out. We find out a lot of things. Some we find out a lot of things that that work, and, and in a pretty fast fashion because we can see outcomes and results pretty quickly. Because again, everything is just at a fever pitch right now. Yeah, and I, I think to the point of like you know a, a non professionally trained or like layperson getting involved. I think we have. We have nothing but open space in front of us to, to figure out how we can propagate those types of things, right? So the state of Ohio doing some compelling work over the last several years around peer support, not just for addiction treatment, but in mental health uh, as well. And I think, uh, I think that there is uh, certainly value in professional services like what we offer at Brightview. Obviously, you know, I spent a lot of time in school to become a psychologist and, and what have you and, and value that training tremendously. Uh, at the same time, I think that there is a place to democratize some of the skills that we have, right? So that someone doesn't have to go to go to college to get a degree and to get a license and can still be a helper. And so uh, I think that, you know, there's certainly some compelling work being done to test uh, how to democratize uh, psychological skills training uh, out in the world. Uh, Harvard University is doing some good work in this regard. And so I think uh, really excited to see how do we bring more people in uh, so that they feel like they can do something. Because I think when we raise the awareness and have the conversations and do all of the things we've talked about uh, so far today, that's excellent. But then a lot of times people ask, okay, what can I do? And it's like, well, you got to go to school for four years and do all of this. That's not going to be for everybody. Right. And so we've got to have some good answers on what can I do to help? How can I get involved? Right. And, and more than just, uh, uh, you know, you know, donating money or something like that. It's, hey, you can actually get involved and get your hands on this stuff without uh, a formal degree uh, if we if we make enough progress in, in uh, like I said a couple times, democratizing some of this knowledge. We just saw something like that. I don't know if you, either of you guys have seen the story, but I, I don't know which school district it was here, but they were going to relax the requirements to be a substitute teacher. Simply put, they because they just they they need an adult to be in the room with these kids because of protocols and sickness and whatnot, and we're going to probably come out of this and go, okay, the guy that works at Home Depot for thirty five hours a week is a responsible adult. He can hang with these kids for six hours or whatever it may be. Um, and it sounds maybe perverse and a little sinister to say, but we're going to look back at this time and go, we got, we got a lot of good things. We lost a lot of life. We changed a lot of things for the worse. Everybody on the planet has been affected, but we did get some good things out of this. So uh, adversity doesn't build character. It reveals it. And um, we will come out of this with, with a bit more character and lessons that we did not know before that maybe we needed to get past even challenge, more challenging times in the future. Yeah, completely agree. I think, I think these, the challenges that we have faced have definitely accelerated some existing trends and definitely cause us to, to challenge some some norms that we've held in the past. And so that'll happen in healthcare. That'll happen in schools like you're talking about. That I think that'll happen at a societal level for sure. Which yeah. is an exciting time to be alive. Uh, you know, not, yeah. not the easiest time for sure, but <laughs> exciting time for sure. Gene, I want to <laughs> thank you and congratulate you for not blurting out any Spider-Man spoilers the, during the entire duration of this. I know you're probably... Not in anxiety, but you're probably sitting there drenched in your own sweat, wanting to tell Dr. Kang about how many Spider-Men showed up in the Spider-Man movie, who died, what villains came back, and whatever else happened on The Bachelorette this season. Yeah. Hey, in closing, the secrets are safe with me, you guys. I'm not spoiling any of that good fun. Especially in the holiday time, in theory, if we have a little little bit more downtime, right? Sounds like Dr. Kang is going to do some catch-up. Um, thank you. I've got a uh, I've got a Barbie dream house to build. that's going to take like five <laughs> hours. So that's, what I'm, that's what I'm dreading here for the next couple of days. Now, now look, you're not going to dread this. I, I I'm going to talk you into this. You can do this. You've done more challenging things, and then also, I'm assuming this is for your little girl. Think of the joy she will feel watching her dad present her with this after you have sweated away for hours fixing this up for her. She will be delighted, and that is your motivation and your goal to see her smile. Okay, That's so right. first of all, I don't know if you've seen the small pieces that these things have. I don't actually know if I can do it. And then and then the worst part is Santa's going to take all the credit, so I don't actually do right. that on the back end. Right. Santa, oh, 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 wait, so Santa's going to deliver it, like, pre-built? 
Uh-huh. Pre-built, hey, so it's there on the morning of. That's the that's hey, the norm and expectation that we've set in Dr. our house. Dr. King, I'll relieve some of your anxiety. As I said, um, and Eric knows I'm caring for my older father, who I just adore. And one of my favorite uh, Santa memories was this beautiful vanity, the little bench and the mirrors that was under the tree. Maybe I was about 10, 12, with a note that said when the mirror was cracked and it was a little cockeyed, it said, Fell off of sleigh. Love you, Santa. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> excellent, so excellent. There's, uh. there's always an out. And we still talk about that today, about the vanity that was almost perfect. And uh, it, it's just the funny, weird stuff you remember. I can hear the concern in Dr. Kang's voice. Another thing I like to pass along is... Know your weaknesses, know when you can't win. So, Dr. Kang, you're going to want to pay the elves $150 construction fee to have that thing built for you. If not, she will play with it, and it could fall into a million pieces, and you don't want to deal with those tears. Now, that is catastrophizing right there. For sure. I don't know about that. Do you really want to risk your, cl- your crying little girl, devastated that Santa didn't build her home right? Oh, man, what, a, what an image to, to think of that. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, as always, Dr. Right. Kang, thank you. I guess we'll catch up maybe in the springtime or so, uh, or or two variants down the road. Um, but good health, good happiness to everybody during the holidays and the new year. Gene, I'm sure you'll be texting me soon, okay? Uh, you know what? You promised me coffee next week, so I know. you're not escaping. I know. So I we'll know. be for our coffee catch up. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy hey, thanks new so year. much, Eric. Thanks. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Yeah. To everybody. Thanks. Enjoy. Bye.